Well, good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're thankful that you are with us. Uh, we get to celebrate this morning, uh, we get to celebrate baptisms, which is something we love to do around here. Baptism illustrates our new life as a Christian. Romans 6.4 says this, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised uh, from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Jesus died for our sins on the cross, but then three days later conquered death, overcame the grave. This is the Savior that we put our hope in, and baptism illustrates our new life as a Christian. It, it, it uh, illustrates the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. It demonstrates that in Christ we are made new, we are washed clean, and given a new heart and a new spirit within us. One thing we love to do uh, when it comes to baptisms is have our Sun Chasers Children's Ministry come in and to be able to share in the testimonies that are, uh, are going to be talked about, to be sharing in the life change, and, and frankly, for those that are getting baptized, setting an example for those younger, them, younger than them and setting an example for that next generation of what it means to be a Christ follower. Another verse that we love around here, uh, especially as it relates to baptism and who we are in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Baptism, it doesn't make you a believer. It doesn't make you a believer. It demonstrates that you already are a believer, that you already believe, that you are saved only by your faith in Jesus. Our salvation is not based upon how good you and I are or our good works. It's based solely on our faith in Christ, receiving His forgiveness and following Him as Lord and Savior of our lives. And when we're baptized, we're following the example of Christ. He was baptized early on in His ministry in the Jordan River. And then we're also obeying the great commission that He gives us in Matthew 28, that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that, to obey everything that He has commanded us to do. And so this morning, we get to do what Jesus has commanded us to do. We like to say around here that when we get baptized, we're going public with our faith in Christ. And this morning, we get to celebrate with three people who are going public with their faith in Christ and getting baptized. Uh, I'm excited uh, personally because I get to baptize um, a couple of guys that I used to coach basketball-wise couple of my favorites through the years, and I also get to baptize uh, a woman of God, a mother, a wife, uh, someone who loves Jesus, and God got a hold of her heart as well over the past couple of years. So uh, Kent and Kyle, you guys want to come up, and Miranda, you want to come on up? And uh, I'm going to have these guys, Kent's going to go first, we'll go by age, and um, Kent's going to get baptized first and share his testimony, and Cool. Good morning. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Kent Heinrichsen, um, as Dave introduced. Um, so, yeah, my story. Uh, before um, I became a Christian, I grew up in a Christian home with uh, Christian-loving parents. Um, I was taught the Bible in Sunday school, and I was taught the Bible at home. Uh, we were in the Word daily. Um, but I just thought of the Bible as a storybook. Um, I really didn't apply it to my life. I was just like, hey, that's a cool story. Um, I didn't really think they were true accounts per se. Um, and then, so as I grew older and went into high school, I started becoming really, um, I, started, I struggled with um, pride and lust. Um, I struggled with pornography all the way through high school, um, and um, I was really prideful. Um, yeah, so I, I knew I was a sinner, and I knew that I had to change my lifestyle 
um, or else that lifestyle that I was leading would uh, have major, major consequences. Um, and then because of that, I knew that if I died, I was going to go to hell, and that really scared me into becoming a Christian. Um, yeah, okay, so I'll get back to that later. Um, how I became a Christian. Um, I accepted Jesus Christ in my life on June 25th of 2011. Um, I was at a church camp. I was overcome of conviction. Um, I, said, I, I knew I had sin in my life, and I knew I needed someone to save me. Um, so I, I knew I needed a Savior, and I knew I wasn't at peace with God. So I remember um, we had some quiet time. Um, I ended up going to my bunk. Um, I ended up like crying for like 10 minutes and like saying, um, like calling out to Jesus and asking him into my life. Um, I remember like feeling arms wrapped around me, and I, it was a really good moment. It was really real. Um, yeah, and then at that moment, I was really at peace with God. Um, but for the most part, I kept my decision um, to myself and didn't tell anybody. Um, I think I told my dad originally. I think that might have been the only one. I think I might have told my mom too. Um, but it was really a decision for myself. Um, I didn't make it, a, like I didn't tell anybody, so I didn't have any accountability. Um, and I didn't have a support group for the things I was going through, uh, for the stuff I was struggling, for the sin I was struggling. Um, I missed that support group. So I started uh, backsliding, um, and then uh, two months later, I ended up recommitting my um, relationship with Christ. Um, this time, it was different. Um, the first time I became a Christian out of fear, um, I did things out of fear just to obey God. Um, it wasn't a loving relationship. Um, yeah, it, I was just trying to be obedient so I didn't go to hell. I didn't love the relationship. It was a fearful relationship, and it was unhealthy. Um, and so I needed to recommit my life to Christ, and I wanted a personal, loving relationship. Um, so I did that on August 26, 2011, just two months after originally accepting Christ. Um, this time, I reached out to my friends. I reached out to my family um, for support um, and prayers um, and accountability. Um, that was huge. Um, I gained so much more accountability with um, my friends and family um, through that event. So that was really cool. This is actually the moment when I started to mature and grow in my relationship with Christ. Um, after accepting Jesus, my entire life has changed. Um, through God's power, I am fighting and overcoming, you know, the pride, the lust. Um, and uh, I, I understand what it means to live totally dependent on Christ um, and not dependent on what I think or what I can do. Um, because in retrospective, I can't do anything. Um, so, yeah. So I now have a loving relationship with Christ, not just someone I can just call on in times of despair, but be there all day, every day, um, just like my best friend. So, yeah, that's my story. As Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Yes. <clears throat> I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
So I'm Kyle. Uh, like Kent, we grew up in the same household. Um, loving parents. Uh, parents took us to church every day. And growing up, I did all the right things. Um, I played the part of a Christian. I knew who God was. I believe he existed. But that was it. I didn't need God. Uh, I was in control. Um, I was in control of the basketball team. I was in control of my grades. I was in control of getting into West Point. I worked really hard. That's what I wanted to do. And I resisted really all forms of him calling me. Um, and my heart was hard. I pointed to a moment, you could say summer after senior year, I went off to New York for school. And I was there uh, at a chapel service. We had left West Point for about a week, so I've been a week on my own. Um, and the chaplains gave us the time to be quiet. And during that time, I kind of felt the same, like, small voice. I've been like, Kyle, listen. And, uh, and so I opened up my Bible, the Bible that Angie had given me. And in it, she had earmarked certain verses that her and her dad had picked out. Um, and when I opened it, I didn't read one of the verses that she picked out. On another page, my eyes fell on this verse, Deuteronomy 2-3, and it said, Obey his voice and all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, and the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. And to me, it wasn't just words in the Bible. It wasn't just words that Moses was speaking to the Israelites. In that moment, God was saying, Kyle, I love you. Stop. Listen. And so I did. And, and then over the past few years, it's been really a life-changing moment. Um, my heart has changed. It's still hard sometimes. But God has shown me love, His love, and the love of others that has helped soften it. Um, what control I thought I did had, control in my relationships, control my family, um, control what school I got, I realized I didn't have at all. Um, the more I read and the more I listened, I came to realize that God was really in control. He knew what He was doing with me and Angie. He knew what He was doing with me moving away. He knew what he was doing when I didn't get into the school that I wanted to get into. And all along, he knew. And it was beautiful. That's my story. Yeah. <clears throat> Kyle, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Yes. I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Miranda, you want to come on out? This is Miranda. I'll let her share your, her story with you. Thanks for calling me out as the old one of the group, Dave. <laughs> we'll go by order of age. It's all right. All um, young, all young. <clears throat> so my husband says that I have a really boring testimony because I'm basically perfect. Um, he, uh, thanks for thinking so highly of me, but uh, I'm definitely not perfect. Uh, I went to Sunday school as a kid, but as I got older and teenage years hit, friends, parties, boys, they all became more important, and I made the usual poor decisions of youth. But uh, after becoming a mom at 20, my son Quentin helped me to change my life because I really wanted to be a better person for him. I wanted to be a good mom, and I wanted to be a good person, and I wanted to be a good example. And eight years later, when my daughter came, Again, I wanted to be a good person, and I wanted to be a good example for her, but still, we weren't a family in Christ. And so it wasn't until coming to Eureka and finding Crosspoint that, you know, we started to bring faith into our lives. 
And at first, when we came to Crosspoint, it wasn't that I wanted faith for myself. I came because I wanted faith for my children. I wanted them to have a relationship with God. It didn't even occur to me that I should want that relationship too. And so, um, you know, I've worked really hard to be a good person and I worked really hard to be a good role model, but I didn't have that relationship with Christ. And now I feel like I have that relationship with Christ and my life is so much better. I am a better person through Christ. I'm a better mother. I'm a better wife. I'm a better, better role model for my kids. And I'm so thankful that, that I have God in my life now and that not only will my kids find salvation, but I can find salvation too through Christ because I can't be good enough but God was good enough. And so, amen. Did I mention I'm a germaphobe? <laughs> You're okay. <laughs> I feel really small. <laughs> Plug your own nose, okay. Uh, is Miranda, Miranda, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Yes. I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Seeing the gospel, uh, Romans 1 continues to uh, tell us and remind us that when we might doubt, uh, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who would believe. And so we love to celebrate when the gospel gets a hold of somebody, when Christ gets a hold of somebody and uh, reaches down, rescues them, uh, pulls them, draws them near, and, and saves them. We love to celebrate those kind of life changes. And uh, if you want to get baptized, uh, we have probably another one coming up in May. I'd encourage you to talk to Eric or myself, and we'd love to talk with you about those next steps, about next steps of obe obedience in your devotion and in your love for uh, Jesus Christ. Kids, you can head back to your classes now. I encourage you that uh, after the service, you would encourage uh, those who got baptized, and you would uh, encourage them and um, just celebrate with them. Uh, the moment of baptism is not the end. The moment of baptism is simply the next step of obedience, the next step in our growth in Christ, and we know that. Um, we know that. So I just encourage you, as the body of Christ, to come alongside to encourage and to remind them of of that, and to be uh, telling them that you're going to be praying for them and. Uh, supporting them as they follow Jesus Christ. Some Crosspoint family news with you I wanted to share with you so that you're aware, so you can be praying. Uh, our sympathies, our prayers are with uh, Cindy Mead and her family on the recent loss of Cindy's mother this past Thursday. Uh, services are, the visitation is tomorrow night at the uh, funeral home here in Eureka, and then the service is Tuesday morning here at this building uh, at 10 a.m. on Tuesday. So I just encourage you to be uh, praying for them, continuing to love them as you have opportunity to come alongside to uh, encourage them in that on the recent loss of her mother. Yeah, if you have a Bible, go to uh, chapter 3 of 1 Peter. We've been in 1 Peter for five weeks now, and we'll wrap up the Sunday before Easter. And today we finish out chapter 3, verses 8 through uh, 22. 
Again, the context of this letter is that it's written, uh, Peter's writing to believers in Jesus Christ who have been scattered because of persecution. They're facing a government and a culture that's not welcoming to their new faith in Christ. Peter reminds them early on in this letter that they are strangers in this world, that their new faith in Jesus Christ should set them apart, and ultimately they are to live in light of that new identity, that, that first and foremost, they are citizens of heaven. Because of the context of this letter, suffering is a theme throughout, their first, uh, throughout all five chapters. And today's section is really no different in that. If you missed a week along the way, we'd encourage you to uh, watch or listen online. The two big themes I want to pull from this section are the words suffering and hope. Suffering and hope. In this life, we know we'll experience suffering, that it won't always be easy. It won't always be a mountaintop experience like getting baptized. And yet, as Christ followers, uh, we are a people of hope. We are to be a people of hope. We, are, we, we have a living hope because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ rose from the dead and He conquered sin, death, and the grave. So we'll work our way through this section, and I pray we'll be open to the Lord's voice through His Word, especially as it relates to suffering and hope. Uh, verse 8, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Uh, Peter's not giving us a checklist here. He's describing a kind of people, the things that, as God's people, the things that we are to be characterized by. This is a portrait that the Holy Spirit is painting for us on what our relationships with one another in the body of Christ should look like, as well as giving us further into insight into the marriage relationship that he spoke of uh, earlier in this chapter, verses 1 through 7 that we looked at last Sunday. Five things in verse 8 that are to describe our relationships with one another and the character that we are to reflect. Five things that remind us that in the midst of suffering, we were designed to live in community with brothers and sisters in the Lord, and as a result, we can be hopeful. The first word that he uses to describe the family of God, our relationships, is like-minded, meaning harmony, a common mindset. This doesn't mean uniformity like Henry Ford stamping out believers who talk the same, look the same, uh, just on assembly line, bang, bang, bang. Instead, this means unity in the midst of a diverse body of Christ, hands and feet diverse, various parts working together, being built into a unified spiritual household. You want to know how the enemy is sometimes at work in the local church? It's in the body of Christ. It's to bring division, disunity among the family of God. The Holy Spirit is at work instead to bring unity and a like-minded attitude among us. Next word, sympathetic. This is feeling what others feel being sensitive to the needs of others. When one part of the body mourns, we all mourn. When one part of the body rejoices, we all rejoice. This is knowing the right words to say, the right tone to use, the right time to be quiet, the right time to simply be present. Sympathetic people are not giving this false empathy of, oh, I know how you feel, and, and trying to one-up your story. I don't know if you've ever been in conversations like that before. They're not trying to resolve uh, the, the, the hurt or kind of throw this Band-aid of a fix with a simple Bible verse of count it all joy. Yeah, I know that. Instead, they're saying, I'm here how you need me to be. You're not alone, and what you feel is what I feel. Love one another is the next one. It's all through the pages of Scripture. This simple command we are given, and yet a command that we will live the rest of our lives trying to grow in, trying to um, uh, obey. Among believers, there is to be a brotherly affection for one another. We may be strangers in this world, but among the family of God, there are to be no strangers. 
There are to be no far off distant relatives, but instead we're family. No matter how large the family gets, we're still family and we still love one another. Compassionate is the next word that Peter uses. God's people are to be kind-hearted. The Greek means that uh, you feel generous in your belly, that down deep, down deep in your gut, you care for that person. You love them. And that you're not two-faced with them, but your soul loves their soul. And so this leads you uh, to come alongside someone in crisis, to come alongside someone who is in sin in the family of God instead of coming from on high. You care enough, you love them enough to engage in conversation, and yet you're compassionate enough to do it in a way that's full of grace, that recognizes, had it not been for the grace of God in your life, you could easily relate to that, whatever they're walking through. And so you come alongside. Finally, Peter uses the word humble, a lowly spirit, if you will, a spirit that is dependent upon God, that is fully aware of our own need for God, our own need for God's grace in our lives, a spirit, a humble spirit that flees from self-righteousness or this pride that tends to puff up in us, a spirit that seeks to serve another person to elevate their needs before our own. In the verse 9, we continue to see this picture being painted of what relationships horizontally with one another, relationships within uh, the, uh, even outside the body of Christ, but with the world, what, a, what they are to look like. Verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with, with insult. On the contrary, re- repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Keep in mind the context again of this book is that evil and insult are being done to these people. They are being persecuted. They are being mocked, beaten, left alone, marginalized, cast aside. And God's word says, don't return evil for evil. Don't return insult for insult, which is a good word as well for our marriages, which is a good word for our friendships and the relationships within the body of Christ. This teaching is not always easy to obey and apply, is it? It causes us to live differently than we probably would on our own. But again, we have this new identity in Christ. A new heart and a new spirit is put within us. We are a royal priesthood is what 1 Peter tells us. A people for God's own possession. And our way of life should reveal that we're trusting in someone greater than ourselves. That there's someone at work in us greater than us. It should reveal who we're following. That we're not following ourselves, but we're following Christ. That we are a people of hope as a result. Verse 9 echoes the same truth that shows up in places like Romans 12 or uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.15, which says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Always seek to do good to one another. Or the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You want to live in a revolutionary way? To you high school students, middle school students, college students, you want to stand out for something? You want to live in a way that brings God a lot of glory and reveals that there's a greater power at work within you? Well, here you go. Here's one way we do that as individuals, as households, as a church, that in our relationships with one another, that we are like-minded, that we are sympathetic, that we love one another, that we are compassionate, and we are humble. If you want to know the enemy's playbook, and how he wants to start bringing down the local church or impact its testimony to the world or impact its outreach, its mission, it would be to do the exact opposite of these five things. To be divided. 
to be indifferent to the hurts of others, to hate, to hold anger toward another person, to be rude and careless, or frankly, all of it is rooted in pride, just to be proud. And both with one another and the world around us, we're called to not return evil for evil, but, or, or we just refuse to insult, to exchange insult for insult, even when we've been insulted. Because again, we're following the example of Christ in that. We're following His earthly example. The reason we are to live this way, quoting Psalm 34, Peter writes, uh, verses 10 through 12, he says, For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are attentive to those or to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Last week we saw in verse 7 that how a husband loves his wife impacts his prayers. Here we see another reference in the, in the, in the, the, the uh, biblical reality is that our way of life impacts the effectiveness of our prayers. God has a special openness to the prayers of those who pursue peace, who pursue righteousness, whose lips are pure, who don't lie and don't deceive. There is a way to live that hinders our prayers, and there is a way to live that helps our prayers. Maybe you feel this distance between you and the Lord. Maybe your, your prayer life uh, seems like it's lacking. Maybe the first thing you need to do in order to cultivate a deeper walk with the Lord, a deeper prayer life, is to examine your own heart against these verses 8 through 12. To lay your heart next to and kind of hold it up to the light of these like an x-ray and go, okay, um, my heart against like-minded, sympathetic, loving, extravagantly, compassionate, humble. But to put our heart up to those words. Am I... Am I returning evil for evil? Am I holding evil in my heart? Am I returning insult for insult? Are my, li- are my lips pure? Am I pursuing righteousness? Am I pursuing peace with one another? Well, how's my heart look compared to the verses that we're looking at here? Am I avoiding deceit? Am I doing good? Am I turning from evil? As Christ followers, we're called to Make sure our walk lines up with our talk. And where there's this hypocritical living in us that we confess that, we turn from that, and we agree with God about how He calls us to live instead. Our way of life matters, and yet, just because we're obedient to God's Word, it doesn't mean we'll avoid suffering. Because we might incorrectly believe that, or we might have been incorrectly taught that, that the Bible somehow promises that we'll avoid suffering if we do good. It's like a, as if it's a contract between us and God. That if we just kind of stay on the straight and narrow, that we'll avoid the pitfalls and the obstacles and the difficulties. But in reality, the Bible has this thread of suffering through all of it. Jesus promised that we'd have trouble, so it's not a matter of avoiding suffering, but rather a matter of how we are supposed to respond to it when it happens. How does hope play a part? What are we, how are we to respond to those around us when we are suffering? And that's where Peter goes next. Verses uh, 13 through 17. He says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be, ple- you will be blessed. Peter's quoting Isaiah 8, 12, and a reminder that as we follow and we grow in our faith in Christ, we are not to fear what others think, what they say, what they do. The Bible says the fear of man is this trap. It's a snare that we can get our foot caught in, our life caught in. But rather, instead of the fear of man, we are to fear God, to be in reverence to, to live in awe of God himself. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is like the fine print of our faith in Christ, what it means to walk by faith, that sometimes it won't go well for you. Sometimes, even after doing the right thing, the thing that God commands you to do, the thing that would honor God, you will still suffer for it. And yet we are promised that even in the midst of suffering and uh, even in the midst of that, for righteousness' sake, we will be blessed. As Christ followers, we are to set apart the Lord as holy. We are to honor Him as Lord. So what does it mean to set apart or to honor Him as Lord? John Piper says this on what it means to set apart or honor. He writes, it means to put Him in a category by Himself. The highest place, the greatest value, the most supreme treasure the greatest admiration, the most cherished prize, the one you esteem and honor and love the most out of all persons and all things in this world. That's what it means to set apart Christ as Lord. We are to stand in awe of His Lordship over the universe that no matter what our circumstances around us may say, we know that He is majestic, we know that He's sovereign, He is holy, and He is good. And what Peter tells us in verse 15 is that when we, when we set apart Christ as Lord, it will lead to this hope within us. A hope that is there despite the circumstances, this unshakable hope. In Christ, we have this inheritance that can't be taken away. An eternal glory for those who endure and persevere and trust and follow till the end. An eternal rest that far outweighs the light and momentary trouble that we experience here on this earth. This biblical truth is found elsewhere, not just in 1 Peter. Uh, Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or 2 Corinthians 4.16-18 says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And I know we can't get our heads around that really well because we're on this side of heaven. But this is what it looks like to walk by faith and not by sight where we trust in the goodness, the grace, the sovereignty, the nature, the character of our God. And as a result, in the most difficult of seasons, in the midst of suffering, even for trying to do good, even for doing good, doing what the Lord commanded us to do, even in the midst of that, there is this strong, unshakable hope within us. If it, were, if it was God's will that Jesus suffer for doing good, then it shouldn't surprise us then that God would allow us sometimes to suffer for doing good. Someone has said the good life is the hard life 
of, trust, of trusting Christ. The good life is the hard life of trusting Christ. We can face suffering because we know it's not the end. The circumstance is not the end. That even when faced with difficulty, that God has not forsaken us, but He is there with us. This is why Paul could say in Philippians that to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because either way, he was good. Either way, his circumstances and surroundings weren't going to impact his living hope that he had in Christ, whether he was living or he was dying. I don't know about you, but when difficult circumstances seem to be really large around me, that's, of all times, that's where I'm tempted to hope in in myself. Maybe you can relate. But this is why we set apart Christ as Lord, because it reminds us that, oh yeah, 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 we hope in our risen Savior, our reigning Lord. We hope in Him because He is great. He is above all else. We exalt Christ, not ourselves, not the obstacles, not the difficulty around us that we're walking through. Instead, we honor Christ. We set Him apart. We lift Him up. We're trusting in Him. And when we're too weak to do that, or when we struggle to do that, we need others around us who will do that for us, who will remind us of that reality. People who will be, as verse 8 described, like-minded, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, humble. This is why we need to be these kinds of people by the grace of God. This is why we need to surround ourselves by the grace of God, by these people, because we don't need contentious, uh, indifferent, rude, self-centered, proud people around us. We don't need to be those kind of people. Instead, by the grace of God, we need to be like-minded, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, humble, because in the midst of suffering, these are the elements that we need in the body of Christ to walk with, to be surrounded with, to surround others with. A believer in Christ should never suffer alone. If you feel like you are, I'd encourage you to reach out this week. Allow us to pray with you. Allow us to walk with you. One way God gives us hope is by giving us His body, giving us the, the church, the body of Christ, the hands and feet, of God's people to walk through life with. Peter says to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter says to be prepared. You know, when you don't respond as the, as the world would normally respond, when you're being unjustly treated, when you're walking through suffering and you're not responding the way normally the world would respond, but instead you're responding with hope, people are going to notice. And some might try to slander your good behavior by pointing out your flaws, by claiming, oh, you just think you're perfect, don't you? Or, oh, goody two-shoes, I know, I know. Or others will see this hope that is within you and wonder why. Why? I see what you're going through and you have hope? Why? Which will lead them to ask, which will lead you to an opportunity to share about Jesus, which will lead to an opportunity to make disciples. Earlier this year, I was talking to uh, Logan Reuter, and for those of you who don't know, uh, Logan and Kara uh, Reuter had uh, twins 12 weeks premature last summer, and uh, Bo, their son, Brooklyn and Bo, are their kids. Bo was in the hospital for seven plus months and has been in and out out of the hospital a handful of times the last uh, couple months, and still has got a long way to go, but has made incredible progress by the grace of God. And to say this season has been difficult on the Reuters, on their extended family, is a massive understatement. All right? And I would encourage you to continue to love them through meals, prayer, encouraging words, those kinds of things. Well, uh, Logan was telling me about the story of another parent of a preemie baby who had heard about Logan and Kara and the roller coaster that they had been on for several months. But what this 
parent heard was about the faith of Logan and Kara. She didn't describe it that way, but what she saw was the hope that they have within them. And I'm not by any means trying to give off this impression that everything has been Pollyanna, everything has been rainbows and Care Bears the last seven plus months, all right? But I am saying that in the, uh, the, the, this, what, what the hospital staff has seen is this underlying hope that even in the raw, really honest moments before God or before others, there's this underlying hope. And that news traveled to this parent who then um, wanted to talk to Logan and Kara. It opened up a door for God to use the humble testimony of new parents speaking about the hope they have in God. Now, some of us would say we're not qualified to do that. We're not qualified to share because we don't know enough. And keep in mind, the people that Peter's writing to here probably couldn't read. Probably couldn't read. They weren't well-schooled. They didn't have a, like a thousand-page book sitting on their shelf helping them out. They had the Holy Spirit. So you don't have to be a scholar to defend and speak about the hope that is within you. We can simply point to the God-man Jesus who bore our sin on the cross, who rose again on the third day, who ascended to heaven, who's one day is returning, in whom we found salvation, life, forgiveness, hope, rest, peace, love. You're qualified because the Holy Spirit lives in you. You're not qualified because you know a lot. You're qualified because the Holy Spirit lives in you and you know the one who is qualified. Notice that Peter says we are to answer or defend or explain the hope within us with gentleness and respect. Our hope is not to be an arrogant or proud one, but meek, gentle, respectful. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, though, but in the midst of suffering or difficulty, when tensions and stresses are high, sometimes it's then that we're tempted to rant, complain, be disrespectful, be harsh, be abrupt, be less than gentle with those around us. And this is one reason why the Holy Spirit reminds us here to answer and share with gentleness and respect. Sometimes our suffering or difficulty opens the door for us to tell about Jesus and His suffering, that He suffered on our behalf. And this is where Peter goes next in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter wants to again remind us of the example of Christ that we follow a Lord and Savior who suffered and who can empathize with us. This one verse is this powerful, beautiful summary of the work of Christ and what He has done on our behalf. Jesus paid the price for our sin. He substituted Himself. He died the death that we should have died. And we see here that we are cut off from God, that Jesus died so that He might bring us to God. So before Christ, before trusting in Him, then, then we've been alienated. We've been separated from God. Jesus paid the price for our sin. And so He has brought us near because before we were alienated. Our sin is what alienates us from God. Our sin cuts us off. God is a holy God and can't be in the presence of a sinful, unholy people. And we also know that when we sin, we are often tempted to run in shame, to run and hide. You go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve in the garden, they hear God's voice and they, they do what? They run and hide. And we are still tempted to do the exact same thing. In, in both ways, um, our sin cuts us off from being in communion of being in relationship with our Creator. But God, God substituted His Son for us. He suffered in our place. So when the devil says, you know, you can't pray. God doesn't love you. You'll always be the same person you'll always been. You'll never change. The gospel says no. 
Jesus died in my place. My trust is in, in him. I've been buried in the likeness of Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. Because I'm so greatly loved, I don't run in shame, even when I've absolutely blown it. I don't run in shame. I run to him. I run to him because he welcomes me home who is full of grace and truth. We also see in verse 18 that Christ suffered once for our sins. The substitution was once for all. It did not need to be, nor did it need to be repeated. The suffering and sacrifice of Christ on the cross, it was perfect, it was complete, and Jesus said, it is finished. The debt's been paid in full. The past, present, and future sins are taken away from you and covered in His blood. Maybe for you, you've got some nagging sin that you're just kind of struggling to get victory over, struggling to have the conviction to repent of. You repent and then you kind of fall back into it and you wonder if Jesus died for that one too or maybe that was just a little bit too extreme. He died for that one too. He suffered once and for all. Now live in that reality. Stop thinking that sin has some, some sort of power or hold on you. It doesn't. Jesus not only paid the price for that sin, but he broke the power of that sin in your life. Now it's a matter of living in that reality moment by moment, choice by choice, day by day for the glory of God. In verse 18 and then uh, through 22, it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when, Christ, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, right hand of God with angels, authorities, uh, and powers having been sub- subjected to him. There's much debate about these verses through the years about what they mean, all right, the understanding of them. One of the most likely explanations is that the Spirit of Christ was on Noah, was in Noah as he built the, built the ark and preached about the coming destruction to those who were, um, who were living in rebellion against God and how he was calling them to repentance before it was too late. And God was giving time for people to repent before the ark was ready and before the waters came, but there was this tremendous hardness in Noah's day, and only eight were saved. In the same way, we are living in a time of history where where we have an opportunity to repent and believe the good news, where we can turn to Christ in faith before either Jesus returns as conquering king or we go to see him as, as our judge and we die. Either way, if you're here and you don't know Jesus yet, if you haven't confessed Him as Lord and Savior, I pray you would confess Him as Lord and Savior today. Trust in Him. Follow Him as Lord. If you have questions about what that means, you can always talk to us afterwards. And reading verse 21, you might think, now wait, it, it says here that baptism now saves you. I thought you just said that. I, what? It's, it's as if Peter knows that that's what it's going to sound like. So he puts it in the context that baptism, it doesn't remove the dirt from our flesh. It doesn't remove this stain of sin on our hearts. The waters themselves don't cleanse us. Instead, it's our faith in Christ that happens inwardly that saves us. And then that leads to this outward symbol of baptism. Baptism is the outward response to this inward appeal of good conscience, an inward appeal asking God for the forgiveness of our sins. The water doesn't save. The water itself symbolizes that the blood of Christ saves. 
that His death and resurrection saves, that our faith in Him is what is how we are saved. Ephesians 2, 89. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Just like Noah trusted in God to save him through the ark, we are trusting in God to save us through the death and resurrection of his son. And in baptism, we are making this public declaration that my faith, my trust is in Christ alone. I'm publicly declaring that my life is his now, and I want to live for his purposes, I want to live for his glory, I want to live for his name. Noah and his family were brought through the water and saved by God's mercy. In baptism, we are brought under and through the water to symbolize that, again, we've been saved by God's mercy as well. The themes of suffering and hope are throughout this section. We'll see them again next week. I love the great reminder found in verse 22, reminding us about Jesus. Jesus Christ, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In verse 18, we are told that Christ is our example, that he suffered on our behalf, that he is a suffering servant. In verse 22, we are told that Christ is king, that he is ruling, he is reigning, he is at the right hand of God the Father, and everything, everything, and everyone is subject to him. Philippians 2 tells us that at one point in in the history of time, every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. This is yet another reason that we set apart Christ as Lord, because he is, uh, he is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. As Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? So that truth, again, it leads to our hope that even if we're suffering, even if we're facing difficulty, even if we're facing the pain of life, the brokenness, the fallenness of this world, if, we, if we're being persecuted for our faith, even if we're facing suffering for doing God's will, even if we're being unjustly treated for doing right, even if we're being slandered and gossiped about and our characters being misrepresented, Jesus himself is still king. He's still on his throne. And as a result, we have an unshakable hope that is a witness to the world around us. And when they ask us why, we have this opportunity to speak with gentleness and respect and glorify God, share about Christ, and make disciples. Father God, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for to be able to sing to you, to praise you, to be able to give to you. I thank you that we can worship you in testimonies and worship you in, in the life change and how the gospel is advancing and how it continues to reach people. I thank you for your word. I pray that where... Um, whatever verse, whatever aspect of this section that you need to uh, apply and kind of impress upon our hearts, that we would be open to that. We wouldn't resist that. We wouldn't put up crossed arms or a kind of a raised fist to that, but we would welcome you to change us, to transform us, to renew us. Where we are suffering, I pray that you would bring us hope. Where we might suffer in the future, I pray that you'd remind us again of hope. May we be a people a body of Christ, not just in this local church, but in this area that reflect the truth of these scriptures, that we would be sympathetic, we'd be compassionate, we'd be like-minded, we would love one another, we'd be humble, 
with the world around us that we wouldn't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but our, but our way of life would pursue good, it would pursue you, it would put off evil, it would put off the deceit, and instead put on things of righteousness and to honor and glorify you in that way. I pray that lives would be changed, that you would help us to be salt and light in the schools, in the workplaces, in the homes that we live in. And when people ask about this hope that we have within us, that you'd give us the right words to say, the right tone, we'd do it with gentleness and respect, we'd be full of grace and truth, and that your name would be glorified, your name would advance, that more and more people would come to know you as Lord and Savior. We love you, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Meet somebody new before you leave. Make sure you encourage those who got baptized. Have a great week and see you next week. God bless.